Lord God, we are grateful once again for this day where we can gather together in the resurrection beauty of our Lord Jesus Christ and the hope that we have because of that historic event. And I ask, Lord, that you would use this second appearance that Luke gives for us today in a way that's never been done so in our lives. And that, Lord, we would be changed, transformed, and shine your light no matter where we're found to one another and others as you give us opportunity. Take our minds now, think through them. Take my lips and speak through them. Take our wills and bend them to your own. And like these disciples, set our hearts on fire with love for you and for your son, Jesus Christ. For it's in his name we pray. Amen. Every single one of us at some time or another have our hopes dashed. I mean, come on, 2016, we were up 3-1 to one against the Cubs, and we lost. Right? You know? We all had schools we had hoped to reach. That was our reach, right? And we didn't quite get in, at least some of us, you know? I hoped that the baffle I put on my bird feeder would keep the squirrels out of my cardinals, but I got one. One squirrel, affectionately called Kyler Murray, <laughs> who is an athlete. And every time I see him, he, he, I saw him just this past week. He climbed up, hit the baffle, swung over, climbed over the baffle, got off my squirrel feeder, and ate the entire feeder in one sitting. And then looked at me and went, and, and, and got off, and I said, hats off to you, buddy. But that's silly. There's more serious hopes, right? Hope for a loved one to pull through, and they didn't. Hope for the dream job you were totally qualified for didn't come through. Hope that Mr. Wright, Mrs. Wright would actually be that. And maybe not so much. Today's text in Luke speaks grace into hopes dashed type of people. So I invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to Luke chapter 24. Or in the back of your bulletin. Because what we're going to see here in Luke is some wonderful encouraging news for each and every one of us. Luke 24 Luke is giving us three portraits. Last week we had the resurrection appearance to Mary Magdalene and the women at the tomb. Today, to the Emmaus, these guys are from Emmaus, seven miles from Jerusalem. Take a couple hours to get there, I imagine, right? Okay, so he appears to these guys, and next week he's going to appear to the eleven. Now Luke also describes in Acts chapter 1 that Jesus walked on the earth in a resurrected form for 40 days. He could have written a lot about Jesus' resurrection appearances, but he only chooses these three. So I think what's important for us to know is not the, that just he rose from the dead, but why he rose from the dead. What's going on in these resurrection appearances that can help us in our walk with the Lord today? And so that's what we're going to look at today. And here's what we're going to learn is there's a foundation of misplaced hope, which we all ought to avoid like these two guys. 
And secondly, we can also learn to have a personal encounter with the risen Lord like these two guys, all right? Learning from their misplaced hopes and how to avoid them, and two, how to have a personal encounter with the living God. They're walking down the road, and they are downcast, the ESV translated. The Greek's word could also be rendered despair. They are in absolute despair. Notice in verse 13, that very day. This is Easter Sunday. So this is later on in the day, perhaps mid-morning, midday, afternoon. We have no idea. But we know that he walked with them long enough to have dinner with them, so it's probably later in the afternoon that day. And they're in despair. And what we first learn in this encounter is that they had a misplaced hope. So let's look at the foundation of that. The first reason they had misplaced hope is because they didn't have a proper understanding of eternity and resurrection for themselves. They were like our neighbors and like many of their neighbors that thinking, well, this is it. Life's over. It's all there is to it. Jesus is dead. We're going to die. That's our fate. And anyone who really looks at life that way will be quite downcast if they really think about it. Anyone who comes on our Easter Sunday service, I, I stand in a phenomenal perspective when I look at your faces on Easter Sunday morning. It's the most glorious day of the year. And notice how many seats are empty today. Okay? Because you're my faithful core. You know, and I stand here and I shout at the top of my lungs. And e I made it through all three services this year. Did you notice? I lip-sunk the entire 930 service. Didn't sing a tune. They didn't know. It was great. <laughs> but the reality is, I, I shout, Hallelujah, Christ is risen. And you guys yell back, The Lord is risen indeed. Hallelujah. Because you believe it. You should see the visitors. Their f the look on their faces. And they say, the Lord is risen indeed. And you can, I can almost speak for them. What if it is true? Because they know if it's true, if he truly is risen indeed, it's going to change everything for their lives. And many of them, as we can see, aren't sure they they want the implications of this resurrection. They're not sure yet, and that's okay. That's all right. We need to give them that room to breathe and love them and what have you. But what would it mean if Jesus Christ truly is risen? And these guys are distraught because they're thinking of life without the resurrection. And they're thinking, well, like our neighbors do, you really believe that? How can you believe that? We can't know that for certain. Well, sure we can. This is a historical claim. There is so much evidence for the death and resurrection of Jesus. It's strong and it's compelling for anything in history. Because, verse 17, what are these two disciples talking about? They're talking about the empty tomb. They're talking about the miracles Jesus did. They're talking about what everybody else in Jerusalem is talking about. 
As a matter of fact, they're looking at him and they say, are you the only one in Jerusalem that doesn't know what's going on? Huh? Are you, are you, you're not from around here, are you? You know, what does that tell you? It tells you that everywhere, everybody was talking about this. And there were thousands of people in Jerusalem for this Passover. Thousands. The evidence was irrefutable, and it was such common knowledge that if you were anywhere around Jerusalem, you would have heard that Jesus rose again. It had already hit the streets by Sunday afternoon. 25 years later, Acts 26, Luke records for us Paul's encounter with the governor Festus and King uh, Agrippa as he's defending the truth claims of Christianity. Festus is a Roman Gentile, pagan, Agrippa, a Jew. And Paul says of Jesus' resurrection to Festus, there was a man who claimed to be God who went everywhere doing good. He did public miracles, raised people from the dead, walked on water, fed the 5,000. When he died, his tomb was empty. Nobody could find the body, and dozens of people saw him raised from the dead. And what does Festus say? Paul, you're nuts. Verse 24, he said, you're out of your mind. All your great learning, he notices how articulate Paul is. All your great learning is driving you out of your mind. And what does Paul say? 25 years later, so this is 58, 60 AD, Paul says, I am not out of my mind, O most excellent Festus, but I am speaking true and rational words. No, this, is, this is true, and it's rational for you to be a Christian even today, 20 centuries later. For the king knows about the, he points to Agrippa, the king knows about these things, and to him I speak boldly. Sorry about that. I gotta get some tape for this. For I am persuaded that none of these things has escaped his notice, for this has not been done in a corner. This is not some secret, you know, club knowledge that we have. What's the password to get in? This has been done for everyone to see. 25 years later, and people are still talking about it. And 20 centuries later, we're still talking about it because he is risen indeed. And so therefore, our culture who says, you can't be sure of anything, we don't know what's happened, and our increasingly secular culture, this gets people's attention, by the way. It really does. The resurrection. And eh, I don't know, I, I can't buy that, Gene. I, I don't believe it. Great. What do you believe? How did you reach that conclusion? And the reality is most of your neighbors and my neighbors haven't even thought 10 minutes about it. Just come hang out with me at Jake's. I'll prove it to you. They really haven't thought much about it at all. But they believe what they believe. And it's not, it can't be true. And they're, by golly, they're animal rights activists. They're, you know, they care for the oppressed and they fill the food pantry. I say, well, why does that matter? If we're just going to die and be food for worms, who cares? You know? As a matter of fact, you think what I believe is a leap of faith. 
Well, that's not what they're saying. Ask King Agrippa. He was there. He heard it all 25 years ago. This wasn't done in a corner. It's out for everyone to see. If anything, the, your secular neighbor and my secular neighbor, they have a leap of faith. You know, if your origin is insignificant and your destiny is insignificant, please have, have the guts to say that all of life is insignificant. If it's true that there's no eternity and no resurrection, as soon as you start complaining about racism, complaining about animal rights and oppression, that's a leap of faith. For they are just mental constructs your mind is imposing on a senseless and meaningless random activity of life. And you have no right to talk about anything. And it's an incredible leap of faith if you're going to have that secular view. So that's the first misplaced hope that these guys have. They don't have a view of eternity. They don't have a view of the resurrection which Christ followers have. We're going to have a new body like Jesus is here. Secondly, there's another reason their hope was misplaced, that they were with God incarnate and they didn't even recognize him. <laughs> they, they were following him. They certainly knew what he looked like, right? But yet they don't recognize him. So this is a little mystery here. I will grant you that. They're obviously, in his resurrected form, there's something different about Jesus. But the text says in verse 16, they were kept from recognizing him. There's a spiritual blindness going on here that Cleopas and his buddy have. And there's two indications in the text of what that spiritual blindness is. There's a practical one and a spiritual one. Basically, they're, they're saying our lives are a mess. You know, where's God in all of this, right? And yet Jesus is right there. Why can't they see him? Well, first of all, He's so extraordinarily ordinary. <laughs> Think about it. One of the things that has to be a matter of reflection is if you're going to make up a story about Jesus Christ, not just resuscitated, you know, like Lazarus. Lazarus, yes, he was raised from the dead, but Lazarus eventually died, okay? This Jesus was raised from the dead and has ascended into heaven. Okay, if you were going to make up a story about this, you would make it up like the Avengers. It would be spectacular with CGI, with pyrotechnics, lots of light coming down. Here I am, right? You would. And he would come out of the tomb, put his hand out, and Thor's hammer, shoot would be right there, you know? It'd be awesome, right? That's what I would do. Well, if you walk into Barnes & Noble, like I did this past week, it was, I take the week off. Thank you very much. I appreciate getting the break from an understanding congregation. It was glorious. And so me and Kimmy were going to see Captain Marvel because we had to see Captain Marvel before we saw the Avengers, you know? And so we went into Barnes & Noble, and while she was doing the powder room, I went upstairs to look at the spiritual, what, what's, what's the latest a la carte spirituality of our day? And there it was, 
the Gospel of Peter. And I looked at it and, and, uh, and noticed what they said was, we have reconstructed Jesus. And we've gotten the truth of what the Gospel writer's original intent are. Huh. A document discovered 200 years after Jesus, attributed to Peter. And now you're saying, 20 centuries later, this is what Jesus was really like. Okay, well, what's the resurrection according to Peter like? Well, here you go. Here's what it says. Two guards were standing at the tomb. Two figures, brilliant in light, descend from heaven, and it's so bright that a huge crowd gathers around the tomb, and everyone's watching. They start to go into the tomb, and the rock from the tomb splits out, explodes, you know, and out comes Jesus with two angels for everyone to see. It doesn't take brain surgery to recognize, my friends, that because the first century read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John as first century eyewitnesses to recognize that Peter, it doesn't wash. And it's rather ordinary. It's rather homey. He's just raising the dead. And so, my friends, these Emmaus Road disciples and the ordinariness of Jesus blows their minds. He doesn't ask for Thor's hammer. And so, you don't think the risen Jesus Christ is like this? Why not? Because our future is going to be really ordinary in a beautiful way. It's going to be homey. It's going to be physical. And we'll be able to dig dirt and the weeds won't grow and struggle against us like the original creation. It's going to be glorious. But it's going to be ordinary. But if we were to do it, we would do the CGI, the pyrotechnics, and the, the you know, Barnes and Noble Jesus. But the reality is, most of us here in our culture, here in the suburbs, in Cleveland, most of us come to faith in Jesus a pretty ordinary way, didn't we? It took us longer than we probably would have liked, most of us, right? You look back and you go, why didn't I see that earlier? Well, welcome to the club. You're like Cleopas. And so that's the first reason they didn't recognize him, I think, is because he was so ordinary. And the second reason is that they didn't understand the idea of what redemption truly is. Verse 20 and 21, he says, you don't, you're, the, you're not from around here, right? You look, don't you know what happened? We thought Jesus of Nazareth was going to be Messiah in verse 20, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. What Cleopas is saying, we thought he was going to redeem Israel and they killed him. And here's what the problem is. They don't understand the word redeem. Because Cleopas, like every first century Jew, probably would have thought, they're occupied by Romans, that it's a political redemption, that it's an economic redemption. It's not a spiritual redemption. 
I just, you know, I just need these Romans to leave, and then everything will be smooth sailing from here on. Right? Just like many of you say, if we just get rid of this president, it's going to be smooth sailing from here on. Or get rid of the last president, it's going to be smooth sailing from here on. <laughs> There's no such thing as smooth sailing this side of heaven. There's no utopia. It isn't going to happen. But when we walk with Jesus and recognize that we are in spiritual slavery, that's the redemption we need from. Because we recognize in God's kingdom that we are spiritually slaves. We're addicted to it. We can't help it. You know how addiction works, right? You know, whether it's alcohol or any type of substance, you start to partake of it, it relieves you for a little while, and then you build up a tolerance. Then you got to have some more, and some more, and some more, until it destroys you. Okay? That's exactly what happens. And we're in a spiritual slavery, and Cleopas doesn't see that. He didn't think he needed any other redemption other than the economic and social and political redemption. And the reality is, if Jesus Christ is not your Lord, anything you add to Christ or substitute for Christ as a requirement for being happy in life, you're addicted to. It's a way of getting your sense of self. It's a way of getting your transcendence. It could be your children. It could be your job. It could be sexual relationships. It could be your marriage. It could be your financial portfolio. It could be your possessions. It could be a lot of, quite frankly, wonderful things. In the beginning, it's what you use to give yourself a sense of self, a sense of transcendence. It's a way of dealing with the emptiness of life. And if you get it, there will be a tolerance effect. You find it doesn't quite deliver after a while, and you'll need more of it. Eventually, you find that you have it, and if you don't have it, or anything threatens it, you're a slave to it. See, the reason last week we saw that Mary Magdalene and these women and all these discredited people were the first to hear about the resurrection. There's such a joy in their life. There's such a passion in their lives. There's such greatness about these women who get it. It's because God uses Mary's because they are literally drug addicts. They literally are sex addicts. They know that they're slaves. And the trouble with Cleopas is he doesn't. And that's where most of us are or have been, right? Most of us are on the road to Emmaus in some way. Some of us might be, have a, quite the history, like a Mary Magdalene. The Cleopas don't even know they're slaves because they know it. But all they want out of spirituality is their Barnes and Noble Jesus, the reconstructed Jesus, who really doesn't hold anything for us. No hope for certain. The Cleopases don't have it because they think they need to be redeemed from something far deeper. But most of us come to Jesus in Cleopas's way. It starts out with, Jesus, help me to deal with blank, right? We come to him out of desperation. God, if you just help me with this, then, right? 
Did it ever occur to you that whatever you fill in that blank, maybe it's your career, for example, is the very thing that's strangling you? Not at first. We don't typically do. But God can use it. But instead, you have to realize until Jesus becomes the most important thing in my life, my job, my kids, my marriage, my financial portfolio, everything, I want Jesus Christ to help me, then I'm free. I'm living under his lordship. Now look what Cleopas says. He was crucified, but we thought he would be the one who redeemed. Until you see the depth of your slavery, you're going to say the same thing. Okay, so that's all their misplaced hope, right? They've placed their hope in an eternity with, without a resurrection. They, 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 they don't see the ordinary Jesus, and they don't see the Redeemer the way he should be seen. So last, I think the reason this appearance is given to us by Luke is that there's something that can happen to each and every one of us right now. That each and every one of us can have a personal encounter with the living God in Jesus Christ. We too can have the veil pulled from our eyes and have the blindness lifted as we too go to the scripture together. Notice what they say after he disappears from them. Did our hearts not burn within us? <laughs> Did our hearts kindle within us? Okay. Notice he says, Verse 27, and beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. He doesn't stop all the scriptures. He says, all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. Now, there was no New Testament on Easter Sunday. It was all Old Testament at the time he's saying this. So that means everything from the beginning and henceforth in the Bible canon, everything testifies to who Jesus is. Because there's two ways we can read the Bible, right? There's a moralistic Grimm's fairy tale way. And there's a Christ-centered, gospel-centered, cross-centered way. Take, for example, the story of David and Goliath, right? Let's take that one. That's the famous one. You can pick on that one a lot, all right? David gets up there, he's the little guy, he throws the stone, and the giant falls down. So what's the lesson of that story? The bigger they are, the harder they fall. Right? That's one lesson. I can get my five smooth stones, my five proof texts of the scripture. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Rip it out of that context. And I can sling it at the giants in my life. And I can slay all the giants. Or if you try real hard, you can overcome anything, right? That's the way it's been taught. You've heard that. I'm sure you have. Sometime in your life, that's exactly the way you heard it. And there are truths within those statements. That's true. There are. But that's only if you read the Bible as if it's about you. The Bible's not about me. The Bible's not about you. There's a cross-centered way to read it because it's about Jesus Christ. You know, and if you try to read it 
like that, you know, like David and Goliath, my five smooth stones. It'll be inspirational at first, but it'll wear thin real fast because none of us can live lives with those lessons consistently. But Jesus says the Bible's about me. All of it is about me. Let's take David, for example. Of all the brothers, David's the weakest one, and God puts the weakest one up there to show that salvation comes through weakness. Secondly, David goes on and fights on behalf of his army. David goes as the champion before Goliath so that if he loses, his army loses. If he wins, his army wins. The honor is imputed to the army. If David is wise, the army is wise. If David succeeds, the army succeeds. If David achieves glory, the army achieves glory. David is Jesus. It's all about him. Except that our greater David died going against the greatest giant, death. Death upon the cross for us. Who showed that salvation is accomplished for you and me through weakness. So we can live in the strength of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So here's the bottom line. That every hero is about Jesus and the scripture. All the heroes. The prophet. He's the prophet behind the prophets. He's the priest behind the priests. He's the king behind the kings. And in another sense, he's really behind all true, really good stories. He's behind the Lord of the Rings. He's behind the, the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. He's behind Robin Hood. Every good story is about Jesus, and when you see it, and to the degree that you see it, your heart will light on fire with love for God. Why do you think I pray that for us? I pray that for me. I pray that for you, I want to see this happen in each and every one of our lives, my friend. John Wesley went out on ministry, ordained as an Anglican priest, and he didn't even believe it. He believed in the holiness of the scriptures. And he worked out this method, so this Methodist holy club, and he took this holy club movement to Savannah, Georgia, as a missionary to the good American people of Savannah, and the Native Americans. Now, can you imagine going in full robes with a 1662 prayer book, talking to the Native Americans using King James English about how they need to repent and believe? And believe what, according to him? Go be a good moral person. And maybe you'll go to heaven when you die. That was his message. It didn't fly. Guess how many Native American converts Wesley had? Zero. Okay? He came back to the church, Christ Church Savannah, where he fell in love during this time with an American woman named Sophie Hopkins. Sophie didn't want anything to do with John at all. So he was ticked that he turned down, she turned down his proposal, and so she refused him communion. He refused her communion on the altar rail. He just walked right by her and gave it to El, but did, wouldn't give it to her. Well, Daddy didn't like that. And so he talked the vestry to get rid of him, and they got rid of him. They went to the bishop and said, get him out of here. So he went back to England an entire failure, the founder of Methodism. Why? He didn't know Jesus. So as an utter failure, one night in Aldersgate section of London, he was studying the book of Romans, where he wrote in his journal, 
I found my heart strangely warmed with the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. And he discovered that salvation is by grace through faith in Jesus Christ alone as he studied with a group of people the reality of the gospel. And he realized that his method was pretty good, but it needed the gas to, to power it. And that's when his ministry took off. Like a rocket. Why? Because his heart was strangely warmed. So my friends, it's only when we're reading the scriptures like this that we'll get this. So what does this mean for us, practically, here at Christ Church West Shore? Here's what it means. Come together and talk about the scriptures. You've heard me say, if you're not in a group, get in a group. You know, I know life stages struggle and you can't always be part of it, but I want to encourage you to make that your aim and make that your goal to get in a group, do life together, discussing it because these guys aren't alone. It's not just Cleopas. It's not just his friend. It's not just Jesus. They're all together talking about it. And they noticed, did our hearts not burn within us while he talked about it? And notice what Jesus said to them with all their misplaced hope. He didn't say, that's all right, boys. I'll show you what to get. He goes, no. Oh, you foolish ones. Did you not know that he had to die and suffer? Did you not know the Messiah had to die? And he explained it all. Because when we come together in our small groups, here on Sunday mornings, various breaking of the bread, it's all in the discussions and the fellowship that Jesus shows up. He's, it's in the power of his word. He shows up. That's where he's going to make himself known. That's where he can make himself known now, and that's where he has made himself known. Let's pray that he will continue to do that in each and every one of us as we humble ourselves, do the Christian life his way, and follow him. Because, my friends, Christ is risen. The Lord is risen indeed. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for granting to us this text that tells us in better ways than other texts that we can meet the risen Christ ourselves. Even when we don't think that he's present in our lives, he is. In the ordinariness of our lives, he is. Even in the troubled times of our lives, he is. For when we come together and study his word, we can learn this central interpretive principle. And when we learn to see that the Bible's not about us, but it's all about Him, that every story is not about us, but it's about Him, our hearts will catch on fire with love for Him, and we'll begin to see Him afresh and anew. And then we'll understand our sufferings and our troubles. And suddenly, we'll have a resurrection that's real both spiritual and one day physical. So Father, we ask you to show us more what it means to apply this to our lives through the power of your Holy Spirit. For we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.